So hello, everybody. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and welcome to my office. This is Beyond the Prescription, a show where I talk with people who are at the top of their fields about their health, their success, their struggles, and their relationship between all of it. I'm a primary care doctor in Washington, D.C., and a mother of three. In practicing medicine for over 20 years, I realized that patients are much more than the sum total of their cholesterol and their weight, and that health is about more than the absence of disease. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. Today, I'm excited to welcome a very special guest on the show, Greg Galeazzi. Greg is a U.S. Army vet, a recent graduate of Harvard Medical School, and a dedicated husband and father. In 2010, Greg was deployed to Kandahar, Afghanistan, where he served as a platoon leader. While he was returning to the base after a routine foot patrol, and just two weeks before he was headed back to the U.S., Greg's platoon was hit by an IED, an improvised explosive device. Greg suffered the loss of both legs and most of his right arm. After a long and arduous recovery process that's ongoing, and that included numerous surgeries, years of PT, physical therapy, and adjusting to a completely new life as an amputee and a person with significant physical disabilities, also during that time included meeting the love of his life and having two children, Greg is graduating this spring from Harvard Medical School, my alma mater, on the 11th anniversary of his injury, and he will dedicate his career to serving people with physical disabilities as a doctor of physical medicine and rehab. Greg is, of course, resilient and strong. He wouldn't be here today or pursuing his dream of becoming a doctor if he wasn't. But he's also a lot more than an injured vet. Today, we'll talk about just that, the relevance of our lived experiences and traumas to our everyday health and the human being that lies beyond the surface. Greg, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really thrilled to have you. Thank you for having me here. So, Greg, tell me what it was like growing up in Connecticut, the youngest of seven kids, Many of your family members, patriotic, serving our country in the military. Did you consider medicine as a career back then when you were, say, in middle school, high school? No. No, I did not. Largely because I didn't consider myself as the type of person that would become a doctor. Uh, In my mind, the people that became the doctors and the astronauts and what have you were just a different breed uh, of, of human. I had no physicians in my family tree. Uh, so there really wasn't anybody to sort of lean on, even anybody really in the medical profession at all. Um, and as much as I enjoyed going to school and learning, looking back now, I think the big reason why I didn't even consider this is because I, I just wasn't a great student and didn't really apply myself that much as a kid. And it wasn't until late in my undergrad years, uh, more so actually when I finished undergrad and started as an officer in the army, that I really started applying myself for the first time. And when I did that, I started realizing I was capable of a lot more than I gave myself credit for. And with that newfound self-confidence, I guess, opened up a lot of doors, um, one of which was, was medicine that I started considering. Tell me about not applying yourself and what was that about? Was that you You just being like a typical teenage guy, like sort of, were you like a risk taker? Were you kind of inattentive? Were you just like a normal kid? Definitely some uh, some inattention. I think I maybe took for granted that I was a fairly bright kid. Definitely not the smartest person at all. But I think I was, I was bright enough that I was able to sort of squeak by by just sort of showing up and having a legitimate uh, innate curiosity that that sort of drove paying attention and sort of listening here or there. But when it came to doing things like my homework or reading the books that we were supposed to read for English class, 
No, I'd get home and I would just goof off and play. So I was just sort of easygoing and go with the flow. Uh, and I didn't appreciate how much putting in a little bit of extra hard work in those early days would pay off with good grades and being in higher level classes and things like that. I just sort of showed up and went with the flow. And that's not necessarily the way that people become doctors. As I've come to find, find out, it's a lot of hard work and a lot of sacrifice and discipline, time management and things like that. Um, they need to come together to get to, to where I'm at, to where you are uh, and what have you. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't see that as a kid. Yeah. And it sounds like you assumed that people who are physicians were like a different type of person, someone who had to apply themselves right out of the gate and had a different background maybe, or, or, or... That, that they were just born super smart. And it sounds silly now to look back and be like, well, Back then, yeah, I just assumed the people that were on the path to become a doctor were just like super smart brainiacs. But I, yes, there are super smart brainiacs in medicine, but not that I was too dumb to fall into that category. Uh, just when it came time to go home and, and do your reading assignments, the people that were on the path to become the doctors uh, generally were the ones that went home and did the damn reading assignment that they were supposed to. And me, I would just go home and goof off and then come in the next day. And as the teacher's saying, put your books away, there's a pop quiz. I remember, oh, dang, I was supposed to have done that reading. As a mother of three teens, I can completely relate to that. And, and as a human being myself, and, you know, I want to get back to this later in our conversation, you know, because, because separate from, you know, your injuries and your life after the explosion in 2011, you know, that alone is a lesson to people that, you know, we assume things when we're kids about ourselves, that you can't do something or that you're not cut out in the right way for this certain goal that maybe you didn't even know was possible. So there's something to that. And it sounds like before you even went into the army, you became aware of your ability to apply yourself and use your innate curiosity and intelligence to kind of think more broadly about your life. Yeah, I think it was, it was probably getting closer to, as, as I was getting closer to finishing my undergrad years, I think part of this is just biologically getting a little bit older, maturing, starting to connect the dots about, hey, you know, I'm in college here and finally starting to feel some independence that no one's forcing me to be here and it dawning on me that if no one's forcing me to be here, why am I here in the first place? Oh, I'm only here because I want to be here. And if, I'm, if I want to be here, maybe I should actually start applying myself. And there was this growing awareness, getting closer to ending my undergrad years, having been on an Army RTC scholarship, knowing that as soon as I got out of undergrad, I would be going into the Army as an officer. It was going to be branching into the infantry during a time of war, and it was going to be not a matter of if, but when you'd be deploying. And I would have to be making decisions that would be affecting American soldiers' lives, Afghan civilian lives, Afghan soldier lives, all these, you know, there's a lot of people, American people, their families, what have you, depending on me. And this growing awareness and responsibility definitely kicked me into gear and said, hey, wake up, Greg, you can't just sort of go with the flow. It's gotten you this far and you're able to squeak by with Bs, some As, an occasional C here or there, but maybe you should start giving this your best. You owe it to yourself, your soldiers, future soldiers. You owe it to them, the American people, owe it all. Yada yada yada, um, and so I really started just putting in the extra effort, and really that that was this eye-opening thing. That again, it sounds silly, like wow, you just you did the homework that you were supposed to do, and now class the next day makes a lot more sense. Like it sounds dumb, but I'm glad that I reached that milestone, you know, milestone, and that and I woke up eventually because I realized, geez, you know, I'm not so dumb. These are people that are becoming the doctors. They're not the super nerdy brainiacs. They just knew when to focus and do the work that they had to do. That's right. That's right. Before we get into your service, 
what were you interested in as a kid and in, in high school? Were you into sports? Were you into games? Were you into like friends, movies? Like what was your, what were you into? Growing up in the Northeast in a suburban middle-class town, I had about as normal, stereotypical life you could expect. I've yet played sports. I was, I was on the track team, did cross country, did lacrosse. I was active in Boy Scouts, became an Eagle Scout, was involved in my church groups, was uh, in the student council, was my senior class treasurer, was voted as my graduating senior class clown. Oh, really? I want to hear about that. You know, I was just, I was active, I was social. I, you know, I did a little bit of everything. And, uh, you know, having been born in the the mid 80s, I consider myself very much a product of the 90s, late 80s and 90s, which this is post-Cold War, pre-9-11 era, at least from my perspective as a kid growing up in that time period in a safe town, pretty carefree. America was on top, relative, relative peace and things like that. And it was a good, good childhood growing up. Did you ever have any injuries? I mean, it sounds like you were an athlete. You, were, you ran track, you, you played lacrosse. Like, what was your position on the field, by the way, in lacrosse? I was a midfielder. I stopped playing lacrosse in, after my sophomore year of high school. Uh, I wasn't very good. Again, just like sports and academics, I, I didn't really apply myself. I showed up, I had fun, uh, but didn't apply myself. So with that, I was definitely never the star athlete. And at some point along the way in high school, people start, the people like me who are just there to have fun and the people that are doing it really competitively start to part ways. Uh, and it started to become not fun for me, but I enjoyed being on the cross or the track team. So uh, I, I was a pole vaulter mostly on the track team. Oh my gosh. You have all these talents, Greg. So you're a pole vaulter and the class clown and the class treasurer. You were like the Renaissance man. A, a little bit. Yeah. So I, I think I was, I was, I was then, and I think I, again, I am today, uh, always sort of have been good at a lot of things or okay at a lot of things, but never the star in any one thing. So that is interesting. And I want to get back to that because I mean, to me having sort of a, a diverse portfolio of things you can lean on for joy, pleasure, and also during hard times is, is pretty important. I mean, I think people who put all their eggs in one basket, like for example, you know, professional athletes or college athletes, right? Like if you have this singular focus and then something happens that can, that can be hard, but I don't know if that laid the groundwork for you having the ability to cope, having sort of a humor, leadership skills, an interest in people and, you know, sort of a diverse array of interests. I definitely Absolutely, 100% think that that has helped me along the way. And yes, put your eggs in one basket and that one thing gets pulled out from under you. What do you have left to stand on? I don't know what made me sort of this jack of all trades. Attribute some of it to being my astrological or zodiac sign as a Libra. Are you a Libra, Greg? I'm a Libra too. What's your birthday? October 11th. Okay, I'm 1022. One and one and two and two. What does that mean? You know, I am a scientist and a doctor, but I do have a broad array of interests that you may be surprised about, but I, I, there's something to that. So let's talk about, let's move on from our ages, okay? Let's talk about your service in the army and in Afghanistan. I mean, tell me what you were, what you were doing, and then if you could tell me about that day, that moment, to the extent you remember, I know you remember some of it, but take me there if you could. Sure. So I, I was commissioned as an officer in the army. When I graduated college in 2007, spent a couple of years doing initial training, most of it down in Georgia, uh, infantry officer basic school, school uh, ranger school, 
a few other leadership courses before getting assigned out to Fort Carson in Colorado, where I was assigned with the 4th Infantry Division. And there I had some initial leadership roles, including being a platoon leader prior to deploying to Afghanistan. And actually at the time that we deployed to Afghanistan in the summer of 2010, uh, we were going for a 12-month deployment. At that time, I was in a, a small team in Kandahar, Afghanistan, which is in southeast part of the country, um, second biggest city after Kabul. I was on a small team there that was tasked with providing support and some advisory roles to senior Afghan-level security uh, leadership. But then less than a month into the deployment, one of the platoon leaders in the battalion I was a part of, Mark Naziska, I believe he was 24 years old, was killed by a roadside bomb. Actually, he and the senior squad leader in the platoon uh, were both killed in a single roadside bomb blast. And as sad as it was, most people understand that wars don't stop when people die. And this was less than a month into a 12-month deployment. Um, so we had a long ways to go. I really wasn't too happy with my position as an infantry officer, being in a being deployed in a war zone, doing more or less a desk job. It's not something that you I trained for or really enjoyed. Um, and so I volunteered and was granted uh, the position of taking over for this platoon, basically given a three-hour notice that the brigade commander was coming to pick me up. I was going to be getting picked up and was going to go take over this platoon of soldiers that had just lost their two of their most crucial uh, leaders. That's a pretty important moment, I would imagine. It was, definitely. I mean, I talk about a situation that you're not trained for. There's no book out there that can tell you what to do in this situation. Just sort of have to use everything you've got up to that point in life to make it work. And so, yeah, three after a few hours of being notified, I dumped all my stuff into a few duffel bags. Commander came, picked me up, drove me an hour away and dropped me off at some old half-blown up schoolhouse that was being used as a temporary base for my platoon and fell in line. And uh, um, the hard part being not just showing up and following, but showing up and being expected to lead these soldiers. And leading soldiers who had just been through a pretty significant trauma themselves. I mean, did you know the two who died? I knew one of them. I knew the guy that I was taking over for. Uh, I met him a few times just in some casual officer nights out prior to deploying. I did not know the other soldier, but it was clear from the first second I got there that both of these men were uh, highly revered and loved uh, within the platoon as brothers. So tough role to step into. Um, yeah. But I had a great unit of soldiers. Uh, we were Anywhere at the time, because people come and go off, off leave. Some people get injured or, or need to go on other assignments. But at any given time, it was about 30 to 40 American soldiers uh, and dozens of Afghan military and police counterparts uh, that I was in charge of for the following 11th, uh, 11 months uh, to get us home. Uh, while we were there, we had three main missions. We had a small part of the map in rural farmland just outside of Kandahar City that enemy insurgents had been using for years to have weapons caches and to build IEDs and stage these large-scale attacks. And they'd go, you know, 20 minutes into the city, conduct these big attacks, and then retreat into the rural farmland where they could just, you know, rinse and repeat and do it all over again. So we were in that part of the country. Um, our three missions were basically find and respond to enemy insurgent activity, usually entailed clearing roadways of explosives, clearing out abandoned homes so that people could move back in, farmland that was basically unusable because when the Russians were there and they sort of carpet-bombed places, there was a lot of unexploded munitions, and they're basically just designated as minefields. 
me and my soldiers would clear those fields so that people could come back to return to farming. Training the security forces, the Afghan security forces, was another big part of our role. And then the third big arm of our mission there was providing humanitarian aid to the local people. Um, and we were there day in, day out, doing a mix of these things um, and starting to see some progress as far as a counterinsurgency fight goes. You're not about how many enemy soldiers you kill in a counterinsurgency. It's about winning the support of the local people. And if the people, the local people that live there in those communities start agreeing with you and supporting you and your mission uh, rather than the enemy, then, then that's the win. And we were seeing a lot of progress in, in those regards. Um, and we're getting ready to come home uh, two weeks before coming home, uh, May 26th, 2011, just returning from a normal day mission. I think we went out early, set up uh, some quick traffic control points where you inspect vehicles coming through, make sure that people don't just feel free to transport weapons and things like that through the city. Um, some kids had notified us that they thought they had found some explosives on the side of the road, which they were, and we dealt with those accordingly and helped dispose of them safely. Um, gave some praise and stuff to the kids that reported it to us. And we were on our way home and just walking down the road um, out of nowhere. I just felt, I don't even know how to describe the feeling. I've described it in the past as being hit by a, a freight train or smashed by a wrecking ball. Whatever it is, I felt like every inch of my body just sort of crushed in an instant. I had no idea what was going on. I just knew that things got quiet. My body felt this sharp bit of pain, but otherwise felt numb. And I was trying to move, but couldn't and felt myself crash into the ground. And I noticed dust settling around me and started to put two and two together. Okay, I think I just got hit by a roadside bomb, you know? But in my mind at the time, I was thinking, well, I'm awake, I'm alert, I'm thinking relatively clearly here, so, and I don't feel too much pain. I can't have been hurt all that bad. But my, my legs felt a little bit numb. And so I said, let me sit up and, and assess the damage. And I sat up, or at least I tilted my head up, expecting to maybe see a broken leg or something like that. And uh, I mean, I don't know, I can't describe the feeling other than gut-wrenching uh, to see that my legs weren't broken. Uh, they weren't even there. People ask me these days, oh, what, what surgeon amputated your legs? And there was no surgeon. My legs weren't repairable. They were vaporized. All I saw when I sat up was the ends of the severed bone that were sticking out of burnt, mangled, charry, charred, bloody flesh. I didn't know it, but my right arm was almost completely severed at the elbow as well. And a swirl of feelings and thoughts went through my head of, wow, what do we do? I'm supposed to call out for a medic now. That's what we do in the training exercises. You call out for a medic, but we didn't have a medic with us on patrol that day. He had been assigned to a different uh, operation. So we had no medic. Medics these days are the only ones that carry morphine, pain meds. We had none of that around. Uh, all I had was my soldiers that had all received their basic lifesaver, combat lifesaver training that everybody gets before deploying. The most key bit of training that they applied was how to apply a tourniquet. And they rushed up to my side and applied a tourniquet to my arm with both legs, and I passed out. I woke up about a minute later, tourniquets were on, and my soldiers had secured the area and were uh, in the process of calling in a medevac helicopter. Uh, the helicopter took, I think, from the time that they called up my injury to the time the helicopter arrived was a little over 30 minutes. Before the helicopter arrived, um, the initial helicopter that was coming out, I could hear the radio, I could hear my soldiers talking to them. They were 15 minutes out, 10 minutes out, five minutes out. There really wasn't any pain at this point. I think it was numb. I think I was in shock. I was nervous, but I started thinking, turning the helicopter five minutes out, you know, maybe I can, maybe I will survive this after all. 
And then I hear two minutes out. Okay, I can hang on for another two minutes. And it was just after I started to get my hopes up that I heard the helicopter pilot come back over and say that they were having mechanical problems and that they had to turn around and that they'd get another helicopter out as soon as they could. And it, I think it was that mind fuck, if you will, of getting my hope sucked out from under me. That's when the pain kicked in. Wow. And I had nothing except my soldiers rolled up an unused extra t-shirt that someone had and let me bite down on it. Uh, and I'm more or less as, as terrified as I was of death. I started praying that death would come quickly because that sucked. And, it's, and there was this growing awareness of, okay, even if I do survive this, what's life going to be like? And is it a life I want to live? But eventually a helicopter did arrive. Uh, my soldiers put me on the helicopter. I passed out. Medical reports say I flatlined for three or four minutes. And uh, yeah, a few days later, woke up in Army Hospital at San Antonio, Texas. And that's when the real, I'd say, nightmare began. Greg, first of all, I can't thank you enough for sharing that story. It just makes me pause for a minute and makes me just reflect on so many things and have so much empathy for you. And I think you hear this a lot. We've talked about it, um, that people, I think, tend to kind of pedestalize or glorify that story when I just want to pay respect for this, the sheer terror you, you went through and that moment where you were told that there was some mechanical problems and then reality kind of set in. That sounds like one of the most horrific moments I could imagine. Definitely the most horrific thing I've lived through, for sure. Was it like an on switch of the pain? Like you hadn't felt pain, it was shock, and then all of a sudden you felt, you felt pain? Was it that quick? From what I remember, yes. It's also shocking how much you remember about all of it. You know, I mean, our bodies and brains have extraordinary abilities to kind of block out hard memories, I mean, it's sort of a protective mechanism, but you actually remember in pretty gruesome detail every second, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the truncated version. There's a lot more of the details and interactions I had with my soldiers, giving them some guidance. And I knew that they were angry. I knew that there were people around, coming around to see what happened, local civilians coming around, and my soldiers were really, really angry. I remember hearing them screaming and yelling. I remember telling them, keep their cool don't lose their their cool over me getting injured and losing all the progress we made in building relationships and building trust with these people. Like these are, these are the things that are going through my head, thinking about my mom, thinking about my faith. I remember a lot of it and I don't want, honestly, I don't want to forget it. I, I get, I, I understand that it's a protective mechanism, but I truly feel that one of the, the factors in my success in terms of moving forward from these pains and this trauma that I've lived through has been to not suppress it. From day one, I've been sharing this story. Um, and it can be hard to tell, but I'm not, it's, this is without a doubt, the single most life-changing experience I've ever had. I don't want to forget it. I want to remember it. I want to grow from it. So I think that having that attitude from day one has, has really helped me because I'm not carrying some weight around. I've just been totally open and sort of free and honest with this from, from the get-go. If I may, it's extraordinarily healthy, as you're describing, to have your eyes wide open and mind wide open to the grim, gruesome realities you went through. Because as, as you said, when you face those, those, those harrowing moments and physical and emotional traumas head on, you do set yourself up for recovery, post-traumatic growth without sounding quaint about it. But that, that is sort of true universally. And that's what's so interesting about you to me, Greg, is... Of course, your injury is fascinating and how you've grown as a person, 
but it's also really interesting to me, the process of how you got there. Tell me this, what kind of training, if anything, did the Army give you pre-deployment on dealing with trauma, emotional distress? Because we all know about you know PTSD and we all know you know, the war is ugly. You are going into a war theater, risking your life, and there's no secret about that. I mean, what kind of prep did you get, if any? Trying to think back now, 11, almost 12 years, but I'm pretty sure we received very, very little. There's, in general, at least the time that I was in, uh, there was, you do an annual suicide awareness training. It was probably the biggest mental health thing that we did, which was kind of a, you know, all right, we're doing the whole battalion today, so you know, let's get or the whole few companies. So we're going to have a few hundred people, bring them to the auditorium, gymnasium, and do the mandatory check the box training. And that was kind of that was the only time that they really talked about mental health and watching out for your friends who might be suffering and how to bring them to the the chaplain or your chain of command if you're worried about somebody. Letting people know that maybe you're you're not going to lose your security clearance by seeking uh, mental health treatment and things like that. But beyond that, resiliency, you know, there's none of these things. I, I and, and in terms of overcoming trauma and things like that, like it's, it wasn't really talked about. And I, I truly think that most soldiers, and maybe it's just the mentality of most people in the military, I think we make peace going into our, serv- our service and make peace with our deployments that there's going to be two outcomes. We're either going to go, we're going to serve, we might have some you know, difficult stories and difficult times, see people killed, whatever it is, but we're going to survive and we're going to come back as that war veteran, or we're going to go and we're going to serve honorably and we're going to, we're willing to give our lives. And I think we make peace with those two extremes, go, come back or go and die. But but there's this middle ground that I fall into. And actually a lot of people, even if you don't see the physical injuries, what happens when you come back, but you don't come back your whole self, you don't come back in one piece but you're alive and we don't really do a good job at all on an individual level or as an institution. It's so interesting the way you describe it because that's to me kind of emblematic of what's wrong with the mental health space, or at least the public perception of mental health more, more generally is that we think about it is either you're not mentally ill or you're suicidal. And there's a lot of gray in between, right? There's a lot that happens before someone decides to take their life or try to take their life. And most people who have struggles with their mental health live in that gray area, whether it's with anxiety or depression or substance use disorder or PTSD or, and and not to mention that mental health is a universal condition. We all have mental health. It's something that is intrinsically connected to our physical health and, you know, caring for our mental health helps protect mental illness. It's also interesting to me the way you described that sort of acceptance before you went off to Afghanistan, the acceptance of either those two extremes, it sounds like they didn't necessarily prepare you for the possibility of coming back changed physically, mentally, or both in that gray area. And that's really where most people live, whether or not they've been at war, but certainly it strikes me as something worthy of addressing pre-deployment for our most vulnerable citizens who are risking their lives for our country. Yeah, I I agree. We need to do better. I think the military, like any of these lar- really large organizations, they're very reactionary to large data pieces. And so I, I think the suicide awareness was a big thing, probably because there's this ongoing stuff with you know the 20 plus 22 soldiers, whatever it is, a day that 
or veterans that, that commit suicide. I know that there was some, I don't know if it's more mental health, but uh, probably traumatic brain injury stuff that we were doing the time I deployed in 2010, where you're supposed to get some, do some computer baseline brain test scan, you know, clicking, checking your reaction time and stuff like that. And you're supposed to do that same test when you come back from the deployment to compare. But that's because with these wars and the improvised explosive devices and everything, traumatic brain injury was creeping up on the news. And so that was a thing that was starting to come up. Um, I'd be interested, I guess, if having a decade since I deployed what the military is doing these days in terms of baseline mental health awareness training, because you're right that that gray area is the key. We're not just either totally well or suicidal. And there's that gray area. It's not like you're, you're getting to the point where it starts affecting your life. I think it's a really affects your people's lives in really sinister ways from undermining their motivation, their energy levels, their ability to socialize with other people, their willingness to reach out for help, uh, whatever it is, that gray area is so important. Wish we could do a better job. We should. Tell me about your recovery from your injuries. When you get home, you've been released from the hospital. Your eyes wide open to the fact that you have lost your legs and part of your right arm. What was, what was the recovery process like? And I imagine is still ongoing today. It is ongoing. Let's say the first two or three years were, were the heaviest lifting in terms of the re- recovery aspect. It took a long time. And I, I finished my, my story before about the injury and waking up here in the States and saying that's when the real nightmare began. Because I wasn't discharged from the hospital right away. In fact, I think a lot of people get in their mind, oh, like you survived, they stabilized you, you know, and now you just send you home or something like that where you can just recover in a bed. But when I got back home, I, I had, the wounds were so big on my legs and my arm that they weren't even closed yet. They had what's called wound vax on, where they basically seal up the wounds with this protective sort of foam or sponge. Uh, and while they figure out and plan for how to close up the open injuries with skin and soft tissue. And it was probably a month, maybe a month and a half before even the holes in my legs were sealed up and completely stitched or stapled closed. In that time, I was in and out of the operating room multiple times a week, in and out of pain. There were times where they had to put me in basically a medically induced coma because the pain was so unbearable um, in my waking hours. Uh, although I wasn't a burn victim, I received the majority of my care in the burn unit uh, there at Procurement Medical Center in San Antonio, by and large because they were kind of the masters of pain and wound care, which I was very fortunate to, to work with those teams. Um, I didn't have the strength even to sit up in bed on my own for months. I had been right-handed, and so my right arm being severely injured uh, limited my ability to do basic things as a 25-year-old, like writing or shaving or feeding myself, or brushing my teeth. Just the need to go to the bathroom was a team effort, calling people. I had to have multiple people on the other side of the bed to lift up a sheet, to lift me, to transfer me to a wheelchair. It was just one thing after another, months on end. And when I finally was discharged from the hospital, maybe two and a half months after initially getting back to the States, I was only an outpatient for a couple of weeks before a terrible infection in my right arm came raging through and basically ate almost all the bone in my arm. I went in for a simple 
relatively simple. Clean out the wound and wash out the infected part. I woke up in the ICU with nine inches of bone missing from my arm. And they're starting to talk about, Greg, do you want to amputate the arm a few inches below the shoulder? Or would you like to go through this potentially a two-year plus long process working with a limb salvage specialist to try and regrow the bone? So you had osteomyelitis and osteonecrosis. I did. And they said, they told me that they didn't have time to wake me up to ask me what they wanted to do. They just had to do it right then and there to prevent the infection from spreading into my chest cavity. Um, They said if it is anybody else, they probably would have amputated the arm already. But because I was already missing two legs above the knees, and they know that patients like me need our arms to transfer and get around, they wanted to give me the option. And I voted for working with a limb salvage expert. And so they did this process. I won't go into all the details, but I needed for almost two years to have it. It's called Taylor Spatial Frame. It's an external frame drilled through the skin into the bones in my arm. They cut completely through the existing healthy bone and anchor pins on either side of the cuts. And then I would have to turn these pins a few times a day to stretch the bone. Through about two years, we stretched eight and a half inches of bone back, but we couldn't regrow an elbow joint. uh, So they just fused the arm. So I have no elbow. It's fused solid. I can't bend it, but I have a relatively mobile sensate hand, which is what we saved. But that was, that limited my process. I had this thing that weighed like 20 pounds drilling through my skin with, I don't know, a dozen holes. I had in and out of the hospital over those two years with multiple infections. And they're still talking about possibly having to amputate the arm if this doesn't go well. And um, One setback after another, other infections in my legs, pain. It was years of just one thing after another. And then medications. There was a, a point where I was on 50 pills of you name it, a day from opioids to antidepressants, sleep aids, then getting down this, you know, pharmaceutical landslide bit where on some meds just to alleviate the side effects of other meds. Right. You're chasing the tail of the side effects of the meds and it's just piling on. It was a nightmare. There was just constant uncertainty of, is this ever going to get better? And if it does get better, what does life look like for me on the other side of all this? Is this even a life that I wanted to live? And I would say that I, along with all these physical things, came the spiritual, emotional, and mental struggles that came with it. Uh, it's hard when you don't even know what tomorrow is going to be like. It's hard when you're not sleeping at all night after night. It's hard when you have extreme pain. And to this very day, I'll still have episodes of phantom pain where it just comes out of the blue. And it feels like someone's taking a sledgehammer to my shins, but my shins no longer exist. So what do I do? There's nothing I can really do. Some meds kind of work, but nothing really works well. I just have to sort of suck it up and deal with pain. Um, I lost my faith. I don't think I was ever suicidal, uh, but there was a long period of time where I didn't want to be alive. And I lost a lot more than just losing my legs. I lost my sense of self. I lost my self-confidence. I lost... The ability to do the things that I loved doing. Hike, I used to be very outdoorsy, hiking, snowboarding, exploring the world, traveling and finding these little off the beaten path spots. And all of that was circling around in my mind. I can't do any of that anymore. How would I? I was dating a girl at the time. Is this girl going to, we're going to get married? If this relationship doesn't work out, which it didn't, how the heck am I supposed to suddenly go back on the dating scene now in a wheelchair, missing limbs? Will I ever be able to have children? All these types of questions swirling around my mind led to deep depression. And yeah, it's a very, very, very bad place. Combining the physical ailments with the emotional and spiritual was just nothing short of a perfect storm of a nightmare. Let's take a quick break. 
Tired of wondering where to look for trusted medical information and advice? Subscribe to Dr. Lucy McBride's newsletter and wonder no more. Each week, Dr. McBride delivers real-time information about the latest medical news and guidance on how to manage your physical and mental health in tandem. Subscribe online at www.lucymcbride.com newsletter and learn the tools you need to manage your health. Again, that's www.lucymcbride.com newsletter to subscribe. And welcome back to Beyond the Prescription. One of my least favorite things in the world is when people assume things about other people. So I don't want to assume that you have anger. I don't want to assume you are, quote, resilient, which I think a lot of people assume about you. And I will say that I think you are, but maybe not for the reasons that other people think. Anyway, did you have anger? Did you have the why me question? Or does that have nothing to do with losing faith, which was so important to you before you were deployed? I don't think I was person to ever ask why me. It always kind of made sense. I accepted that I was an officer fighting in a war zone, doing a counterinsurgency fight. As an officer, you walk around, it's about building relationships with local people. So as if you're in charge of it, my job was to walk around and say, hi, I'm Lieutenant at some point, Captain Galeazzi. If you have any problems or anything, you need anything done, you'll let me know. Basically, it's also Warfare 101 to take out the officers. So I spent 10 plus months walking around introducing myself as a guy in charge. You paint a bullseye on yourself. So there was never a why me. I was a soldier fighting in time of war. I was trying to kill my enemy. Why would I hate my enemy for trying to kill me? So I was actually always, never any anger. There was never any why me. This was just a very matter of fact thing. If anything, it was, I'm glad it happened because, not that I, I was happy that happened to me, but I'm, I'd rather it happen to me than one of my soldiers that I was responsible for. I can live with and accept I planned that mission. I planned the route we took. It's the guy in charge. Like all these things, it all makes sense that I was targeted, that I was hit. So there was never any of that, why me? There was never any anger towards the people that did this to me. I'm not trying to excuse them from deserving justice, have delivered people delivered to them. But on an interpersonal level, I, I hold no hard feelings towards my enemy. I also, almost exactly a year before I got injured, so shortly before I deployed, I lost a sister to stomach cancer. She was 10 years older than me, and she had fought stomach cancer. She was diagnosed at age 30 or 31 with stage four stomach cancer, and she fought it for about three years before eventually uh, checking into starting hospice care and passed away in May of 2010. I think just through going through that alone, I'd already been exposed to kind of, this is the world and bad shit happens, and faith. I, like, I wasn't blaming. There was no blame. There was no God. It was just, I was in it. That is one of the default emotions. I think it's sort of built into the human condition is anger, sort of searching for someone to blame, almost as a way of rooting our complicated feelings post-trauma, whether it's being in the war theater or being a victim of sexual assault or whatever the trauma was. So it's, I'm kind of fascinated by the fact that you didn't have anger. You didn't have anger at God. No, I, I, I didn't, wasn't angry at God largely because I wasn't really believing in God. Well, that's one way to not be angry is to not believe in God right. to begin with. Right. I think that was a, that was a kind of a building thing between stuff that I saw and experienced during my deployment uh, through my injuries and then recovering alongside other soldiers. I mean, as bad as my injuries are, being on the burn unit there, there were other guys missing missing limbs just like me, but also had, had terrible burns throughout their body. I'm fortunate not to have uh, any internal organ damage or severe traumatic brain injury. Uh, other people do. So I, just seeing all this stuff, all this suffering and what have you, 
before my injury and afterwards and living through some of it really just made me start questioning how, how could a God exist? And if a God exists that allows this stuff to happen, maybe you're not the God that I want to be praising. So anyways, yeah, that, that, that was, that was tough. But no, I honestly, as far as being anger, angry at anybody placing blame, I don't think there was any of that. It didn't make it easier. I just, I just sort of had to live through it. That's all I could do. You didn't blame other people, which then puts all of the onus on you, which is really, quote, healthier in, a, in many ways, right? So, to sort of own the process, own the emotional, physical, mental health recovery, um, and to perhaps do what you did as a kiddo, which is to sort of like have your eyes wide open to all of these different possibilities for recovery. I mean... Could you could you tell me how did you get from a place in your life, Greg, where you you didn't you didn't have what we call active suicidality, but you had passive suicidality. You would have been okay not being alive. How did you get from that dark place to thinking about applying to medical school? Right before I deployed, I'd been thinking about what I wanted to do when I transitioned to the out of the military. And that was when I was toying with the idea of pursuing something in medicine. But I sort of put it on the back burner and said, let me just get through this deployment and then I'll start looking into going back to school for a medical career. Um, and so right after getting injured, those first, the first whole year, just making it to the next day was honestly what consumed most of my thoughts, long-term plans. It was just about surviving and then see if I can make it through the night sleeping. But at some point along the way, medicine started to creep back in as a reality. As I regained my strength, as the pain started to subside, the amount of surgeries and setbacks I was having became less frequent and less severe. Then I started to be able to have time to envision a future and to think. And I started realizing, you know what? Maybe I can't do everything in medicine anymore, but there's still a lot of things I can do. And not only can I do stuff in medicine, but perhaps I can use all the suffering I'm going through uh, to apply it to being a better physician than I otherwise would have been. Um, so that became a really strong source of motivation to get better, to work hard in physical therapy, to to get things under control. But as far as how did I get myself out of the, that dark place, there was a couple key steps, I think, for me. One of which was just a, a physiologic thing, which involved coming off of the majority of those medications that I was on. Now, I'm, anyone who's listening to this and not advocating, people just like stop taking all your meds. Because, right. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Yes. We do not advocate for just <laughs> one size fits all treatment of depression or just ditching all your meds all at once. There's a role no. for psychopharmacology, but but for you, it sounds like you were on at one point fifty medicines. It it was it was so it was just so crazy, and I what did not feel good at that period of time. Even if the underlying swelling and stuff like that was was improving. I was just, I felt like a zombie Yeah, going from one pill to another. I was just kind of moving through my days, almost a slave to, the, to these medications, many of which didn't seem like they were even working. But if I tried to come off of it, my pain would spike or things would go crazy. I'd go through withdrawal and I just felt stuck. Um, but part of it was working with my physicians to come back off all those meds uh, and to really get down to only the strictest things that I needed, which for me, I probably went a little extreme, but I came off of everything uh, to the point where I, I lived for a little while, not taking anything, and then slowly reintroduced a few key medicines that made seemed to make a big difference. But with the mindset of I'm never going back to that place, I'd rather deal with some sleepless nights here or there than to be owned by some sleep aid that I can't sleep without. You see why so many people post trauma, particularly veterans, become 
dependent on pain meds, sleep meds, right? I mean, it's like these are highly addicting substances. They fill this sort of, as Jonathan Haidt says and others, a, a sort of a God-shaped hole in people's hearts and fill sort of a lot of a void, but ultimately have major, major consequences behaviorally, physically, and emotionally. So, I mean, it's pretty amazing that you were able to get off those meds. And it sounds like for you, you just had to go cold turkey. By and large. Yeah. Because the, the, the plan that we that they wanted to work out was tapering off. And it was going to take like two years to taper off of all these things. And my my life was just starting to pick back up. And, uh, and I didn't have two years. So, yeah, it was... I also found that if, if we tapered off by just 10% of a dose, or if I just took half of the dose that I was taking, I went through withdrawal for a lot from a lot of these meds either way. Um, and I just figured if I'm going to go through withdrawal, I might as well make it worth it. But it's, so there was like a, a one to two month period straight where I was basically just in like constant withdrawal. And that was probably the lowest of the low. But when I emerged from that period, I felt a lot more in control of myself, my body, my thoughts. There's like a fog clearing. Yeah. Um, I had to deal with spikes in pain and more sleepless nights and things like that. But I, I compensated with having a little bit more energy in the day, a little bit more clarity of thought to be able to work harder in physical therapy and find that by naturally fatiguing my body, I was able to sleep a little bit better yeah. and having to rely on meds. So it was really a balancing act. Um, and it worked for me. Uh, that helped. And then from a, from just like a psychological standpoint, I think one of the biggest things that helped me move forward and get out of that dark period for me was acceptance and stop it. I stopped comparing myself to other people. I'm going to say that again. Please say I, it again in all caps. So, yes. It's really, it, this was really important to me and something I want a lot of my patients or anybody going through a hard time to take away from this is acceptance of my circumstances and stopped comparing myself to other people. Um, there was times early in those first few years after the injury where organizations or mental health teams would send by like a pure mentor or somebody where they put you in group counseling sessions and hear other people talk. And the whole point is to let you know you're not alone and stuff. And those are all great, but they'd send somebody in and be someone missing one leg, or maybe they were missing two legs, but they had one it was amputated above the knee and one was below the knee. And I would always, the person would leave the room and I'd be up, you know, in my mind, like the person doesn't know what they're talking about. Like if I only had, if a knee, a knee joint really just side note here makes a big difference above the knee amputation versus below the knee amputation. Your knee joint is so important in terms of like being able to slow your descent going down a flight of stairs or helping power you up out of a chair, um, balance, so anyway, I would compare myself that that person doesn't know what they're talking about. This person doesn't know what they're talking about. And for and I spent that first year plus working in my mind that I'm aware that other people have endured hardships, but what I'm going through is the hardest thing in the world. It was the hardest thing in my world. But I realized at some point, you know what? Comparing myself to other people doesn't doesn't change a damn thing. I, it was almost as if I would compare myself to be an excuse for why I couldn't do things or to justify why I was being a jerk to the nursing staff or being mean to my siblings who are just trying to help me or something like that is because I had it the worst and nobody else knew what I was going through. And that's true. Nobody else knows, knows what I'm going through. But at some point I realized, you know what? I know what it's like to be a bilateral above knee amputee with an injured right arm, but I don't know what it's like to be one of those burn victims in the room next door to me. I don't know what it's like to have been my sister, Claire, you know, shortly before her getting married, gets diagnosed with stage four stomach cancer. I don't know what it's like to be the parents of a teenage son and 
son or daughter gets killed in a drunk driving accident. I don't know what it's like to be one of these kids downtown in Boston Children's Hospital who's dying from a brain tumor. This list can go on and on and on and on and on and on. At the end of the day, it really doesn't freaking matter if we know what these other people are going through or not because we can't trade. And what is it? Is there some hierarchy of suffering? Is this some pissing contest where I've got it worse than you? Well, my right arm's messed up too, and I'm missing a finger. Oh, okay. You get a couple extra points. Like, what, what is this? It's nothing. I, I, I love everything you're saying, Greg, because two things. One, you're right. There is no suffering Olympics, and we don't get a prize for being the person who suffers the most in this world. There's, a, there's plenty of suffering to go around, um, and there are all different kinds of suffering, whether it's physical, emotional, mental health, you know, societal. And then secondly, you've just described... The birthplace of empathy is your own struggle, not comparing yourself to others, seeing the world through the eyes of other people or trying to. If I think about the most important ingredient in a physician is, of course, studying and knowing the material and understanding what medications to prescribe. But it's also that trust and that shared respect and an empathy for others, because you're probably as a physician going to be more physically disabled than some of your patients, but that's not the point. It's not about comparison. It's about you trying to understand their experience. So like, and you, you can't teach someone empathy. You can just try to be empathetic and try to step outside your own world, which, which I think you had to do. And you've done, um, you've learned from, from seeing other people suffering. Seeing other people suffering and seeing how all this comparison or wishing because with that came, you know, geez, I wish I had their injuries instead of mine. But there's that reminder in the back of your mind, you know, be careful what you wish for. I remember seeing a guy in, in um, down in, uh, in, in the military hospitals. There's, there's been a few that were had both of their legs, but were missing both of their arms. And I remember thinking back then, is it better to have lost both of my legs? I mean, that guy can walk around. He can go up and down stairs. He doesn't need a wheelchair. But there's things he can't do that I can do. And that train of thought leads you to, again, A, you can't trade. B, be careful what you wish for. And finally, just be grateful for what you have. And when I started just accepting, because that's all any of us can do. We can't trade. All we can, all anybody can do is make the best with what we've got and the cards we're dealt. And when I started accepting that, catching, I'd catch myself comparing myself to somebody and I'd literally just have to stop and be like, you know, be grateful for what you have. And when I started focusing on the gifts I had, the things I was still grateful for, I realized that list was a lot longer than the bad stuff. It's easy to, easier said than done because it's the bad stuff. It's the pain. It's the fatigue. It's the depression. These are the things that when you wake up in the morning, if you slept at all, that slap you in the face and say, just in case you forgot, you're not like you used to be and I'm going to be bothering you all day. Those are things that steal our attention and they, they put blinders on to all the things we have to be grateful for. When I started thinking about it, you know what? I can hear, I can speak, I can see. There are people who have been born into this world and never had a single day of any of that. Yes, I was 25 when I got injured, which is a young age, but I had 25 good years. Before getting blown up, the worst injury I ever had was a sprained ankle. I had 25 great years and I made the best of it. I hiked mountains, I snowboarded, I traveled around the world. And so when I started just accepting and being grateful for the gifts I have, the things I've been able to do while I've had the time to do them, that really just shifted my mindset out of that dark space I was in and started just leaving it behind because I was just dwelling. It was just a swirl there. It really, that's, that place goes nowhere. It just spirals. Down is the only place it goes. You're stagnant at best. Um, and when I really just accepted my circumstances and said, I'll make the best with what I have. 
And I started thinking, I realized I have a lot more to offer than I gave, I thought and a lot more I still can do in this world. Um, that really is what moved me, moved me towards, all right, what's next? Cause there is a future for me and maybe it's not defined, but I'm taking one day at a time. And if I want there to be a future that's enjoyable, no one's going to make it for me. I have to make it for myself. Greg, there's a reason why you get asked to speak in front of youth groups and various, you know, assembled crowds about your story. And I think it would be very easy for someone looking at your story, like reading about it, for example, to assume, you know, he was an able-bodied person, went to war, became disabled, and now is going to medical school and assume things about you that, you know, you became strong from your injuries and the recovery afterwards. It's not that quaint, though. It's not that cute. And I wonder if you could speak to what it feels like when people assume things about your, quote, journey or assume things about you, for example, when you're trying to get the change out of the soda machine and the guy, as you told me (laughs) on the phone, you know, tries to help you and you actually want to be able to get the change out yourself. And what does it feel like as a person who is disabled to have the world look at you and see what's going on and make assumptions? Because I think that's such a, it's what we naturally do as human beings because we assume and we sort. And and I, I wonder what that feels like on the receiving end of, of, of that kind of sentiment. I mean, that's hard. And I probably, the, a lot of the physical stuff, the setbacks, the infections, the bulk of the pain and the real heavy lifting in terms of the emotional and uh, psychological struggles I, I felt. Those are mostly the first two, three years after injury. Today, ongoing, what is still probably the hardest thing that I'm adjusting to is exactly what you're just getting at. Just people look at me and they make a lot of assumptions. Um, and nobody wants to be misunderstood. I feel an extra sense of that since getting injured in a large part because I have such a striking visible injury and disability. So I don't really use my prosthetic legs all that much. I've been so busy with med school and stuff that I haven't had a ton of time to really train on them. Not that that's a great excuse, but it's the excuse I'm going to drop for now. <laughs> but uh, so I 99% of the time in my wheelchair. And if I go out in public, I'm a guy in a wheelchair missing both of his legs above the knees. And I get stared at. I get awkward questions from mostly kids, but there's adults too. And then just a lot of really awkward, uncomfortable interactions, which you mentioned, you know, going to a vending machine to get a soda in between classes and somebody sprinting over to ask me if I need assistance opening a bottle of soda. And it's like, it's really, really frustrating that, geez, you don't know anything about me. You looked at me and am I the type of person that people just look at and say, geez, that poor bastard can't even even open a bottle of soda on his own. Um, And it kind of stirs up this feeling inside of me where I want to push back and I want to tell this person to go screw off because I'm in Harvard Medical School and I'm a former officer in the army and drive a car and I've got a house. I'm like, you want to tell them about all the successful things and the things that you want to be remembered for. But all this person saw was, man, this guy probably can't even open a bottle of soda. And there's so much more to me that I want people to see. If I were to die today, there's a laundry list of things that I would want to be known for. And very low down on the bottom of those things would be injured war veteran. But that's the one thing that it's the first thing people think of. So uh, along with that has come the need for acceptance uh, and accepting I can't change the way society views me. The people that get to know me, my colleagues, my classmates, my friends, family, um, a lot of that stuff 
gets worked out pretty quickly. They know, oh, Greg can open a bottle of soda. He can open a door. Maybe he needs help with this. They know what I need help with, what I don't. And I'm just Greg to them. But to the people in the shopping mall, the people on the street corner in the city, you know, you don't have time to give them your resume, tell them all about all your accolades. You just have to sort of suck it up. So that, that requires a whole societal shift in terms of how we view, interact with, and treat people with disabilities. And that's an ongoing process well beyond just me. And being who you are and doing what you're about to do with your career, I think is going to help move that dialogue forward. I think, I mean, the lesson I've learned from you and talking to you, not just today, but is we need to stop assuming things about other people. We need to take seriously our our biases and know that there are, there's a human being behind that physical entity. And there are people who have disabilities that you can't see. You have the unfair, quote, advantage of someone seeing it and therefore rushing, probably with great intentions, to help you do something. But unfortunately, in that moment, there's there are unintended consequences that you have to sit there and kind of suck up. And I think I think it's just a good reminder to all of us, particularly people with without physical disabilities, to just think for a minute. Don't assume. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Does your personal brand or business have a story to tell? Podcasts are a great way to build a genuine connection with your audience. Whether you have an existing podcast or want to start a new one, with K-Global, all you need is the drive to succeed, and we'll take care of the rest. Let's get to work. www.kglobal.com slash podcast. Welcome back. Let's get on with our conversation. I wonder if there's an interaction you've had where someone handled a a moment like that better, and you're like, yes, that's how I want you to do it, like a template. I wish I had that, and it was actually... I had a wake-up call for me to start cooling down my visceral reaction when people do stuff like this. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question exactly, but I'll tell a little example. The example I gave with the guy trying to help me with a bottle of soda. There's another time where going into a building, a lot of times, same thing. People see me heading towards a door, and they'll like dump their you know lunch over to sprint over the door to help open it. And same thing in my mind. Jesus, this person just see me and think this person's so incompetent, probably can't even open a, a door, you know. And I would act like I don't see them and I would go to the door next to it, open it. Kind of a jerk move. Like, but, a, like a fake out? You know. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, I'm, I'll just open the door on my own. No thanks. Or I'd hold it open for them, you know. Uh, oh my gosh, like the ultimate sort of like, hey, yeah. F you. Yeah. Do you need, do you need, do you need a, some assistance? Can I hold the door for you? And so people do that a lot. Then there was this time we're going into my apartment building going behind this guy. And just as he's getting to the door, I see him turn around, he sees me, and then he just opens the door, walks through it, and lets the door slam shut behind him. And I stopped there as this door slammed in my face. And I thought to myself, what kind of jerk doesn't hold the door open for a person in a wheelchair behind? <laughs> and then I realized, you know what, Greg, you're, you're putting these people in a damned if they do, damned if they don't situation. And I realized, you know what? Okay. Again, it goes back to, I can't change the way society is going to treat me. All I can change is the way I respond to it. And um, and at the end of the day, would I rather be in a world where people open doors for people in wheelchairs or be in a world where people don't? And I realized, you know, I'd rather be in the world where people err on the side of being helpful and taking care of their fellow citizen. That is so important. And also realizing, as you just said, I mean, you have the humility to recognize that you make assumptions too. You're a human being who's capable of bias and assumptions too, not because you're a bad person, but because you're a human being. And so you're assuming this person is is sort of, it's a slight when actually it's well-intended. And I think, I mean, like if we could just bottle up that experience and, and lesson you learned when the door slammed in your face and you realized, oh, wait a minute, how do 
do I want the world to work? Um, I think we'd be better off in a lot of ways because in the world we live in, as you know, there's a lot of false dichotomies and there's a lot of assuming and a lot of blaming and shaming when if we just had the conversation, like maybe you do with your friends, like, hey, dude, I don't need help with the soda machine. In fact, I want to do it myself. And then they get it. And then right. you know, little conversations like that can be transforming. It's hard to not assume things because that's sort of just a gut reaction a lot of times that we have. Um, I think catching ourselves when those assumptions are starting to turn into the way we really view people and not keeping them in check that this is something I assume, but I'm keeping the door open. This is only a possibility and I'll let. So if, if there's a template, I appreciate when people ask. And I've gotten a lot better with not giving a snarky response of, no, I'm just fine. I can do it myself. Because, okay, yes, maybe I can do it for myself, but not everybody can. And maybe the next time that person sees somebody who needs a bottle of soda opened or a door opened or whatever it is, getting in and out of their car, they're going to say, you know what? I'd like to help that person. But the last time I talked to some guy, he told me to go screw off, so I'm not going to bother. So just offering, you know, do you need any help or can I give you a hand? And if someone says, uh, or if in my case, like no, thank you. I've got it. Then to respect that and to leave them and not, and, and that, that be it. Um, there are people who are like, you sure I'm right here. I can help you. You know, I'm like, no, I, I, I got it. It's actually more awkward. Well, how about if I hold and you're just like, man, you're just getting in the way. Please move out of the way. Just don't do that. It's very nice to offer and be polite. But if somebody wants to do it themselves, even if it is excruciatingly painful to see them do it. For me, I take pride in any little thing I can do, whether that be opening a door, opening a bottle of soda. I've lost so much of what I used to be able to do that I cherish those moments. Because I've had a glimpse into my future, should I be fortunate enough to live to old age, that these liberties, these freedoms, this independence will be once again taken away from me, whether all at once or piece by piece. And so I would enjoy and take great pride in being able to do these little otherwise menial tasks uh, day by day as best I can for as long as I can do them. You are a husband and a father. What is it like being a dad and watching your kids grow and develop and run around in the backyard? I mean, wh what does that mean to you? It's like the best thing, best thing in the world. I don't know if parenthood is for everybody, but for me and my wife, you know, we've always wanted to have kids and be parents and our two little ones are just absolutely incredible, provide a great amount of perspective in life and keeping things in check. They help lift my day, my spirits up, going through medical school and ongoing recovery on the side for me uh, are a lot to handle. The world's a crazy place, but to see my kids come into the world, be reminded of just in such a crazy world with so much suffering and pain and evil to be around a newborn that's just pure and innocent and inspire, you know, reminds that there's hope. We all come into this world, a clean slate. And um, what are these kids going to grow up to be? What are they going to do? Just come to give me a hug, make stupid jokes to force me to act silly. And Well, yeah. I mean, you were things. the class clown, Greg. I mean, you got to, you got to keep that alive. I do. I do. And I, I try to be silly, try to be fun, but it's an extra hat to wear and it's a big responsibility. I'm starting to accept that it's, I'm never going to stop worrying as my kids grow, it's just the things that I worry about are shifting from one thing to another. So I'm less concerned about them choking on their food now. They're, they're starting to get that down pretty good. But now they can climb and they like to climb on the retaining walls outside. But this, these are the kinds of good problems and good challenges and struggles to have in life. Tell me what success means to you. I mean, if you had to define what it means to be a successful person. That's a tough question. I know that prior to this, our meeting today, you mentioned that that would be something you'd ask and I, I did reflect on it for some time. I don't have a nice, 
left-hand Webster's Dictionary as far as success. If you did, I would kind of find that a little weird. So this is great. Keep going. But there, yeah, there are ultimately there's two categories of success in my mind. There's the societal view, which honestly I don't really care all that much about. I don't want to say that it's not important because it does matter to some degree in terms of like you know what you put in your jobs and how you do in society. But society tends to view people in a much narrower focus of how much money do you make, what's your degrees. You know, how many publications do you have? Um, but I've seen classmates of mine in med school or people outside of med school. They have lots of publications, but they don't care about the publications. They were just doing it because they heard that it's a good thing to have on their resume, publications. And to me, that's the, not the right type of thing. All of us know people that know examples where it doesn't matter how much money you have, um, even though society seems to put that upon a pedestal, that this is the definition of success. These guys that dropped out of college and they, you know, became billionaires. Success, you know, they, they write books and they have a top 10 list and a book reading list that everybody else should read. That's all great and all. To me, though, having lived through what I've gone through, having almost died at 25, I literally have two feet in the grave. They're still there somewhere. But I came really close to dying and the world didn't skip a beat. It just all just kept going. And so a lot of those cultural and societal definitions of success and what matters to the rest of the world really doesn't matter to me anymore. Success to me is the other type of success, which is on a personal level. And for me, I define success as doing the best that you can with the gifts you're given, staying true to yourself and not letting the fear of failure uh, stop you from pursuing your hopes and dreams. Whether you set out to do something, whether it's run a marathon or get a degree or apply for a job, whether you attain that initial goal that you set out for or not, to me, is not success or failure because you can still grow along the way, even if you didn't finish the marathon, even if you didn't get the job, even if you didn't make it through your degree program. If you grew as a person, you stayed true to yourself, you didn't sacrifice your morals along the way, you just gave it your best. When you look back, it's like, yes, maybe you didn't, set, you didn't achieve what you initially set out to but you grew as a person, you're still here, you're still standing, you're still surviving. And if you really think about it, you're probably a better person from having gone through it in the first place. So yeah, success to me, doing the best with the gifts you're given. Doesn't mean you have to be the best in the world at it, you just do the best you can with it because you probably have, not probably, I know you have a lot to offer. And not everybody's talented in the same ways. So some people will go to med school, not everybody, med school's not for everybody, the military's not for everybody. Inventing companies, doing being a big researcher, those aren't for everybody. It's about finding what you are good at, the gifts you have to offer this world, and doing your best at it. Staying true to yourself and then not letting fear stop you because the only way to guarantee that you won't succeed something is if you're too afraid to even pursue it in the first place. And there are a lot of people being impressed that I got into Harvard Med School. Being like, oh yeah, I didn't even apply. I just figured I wouldn't get in. I said, well, the only way to guarantee you don't get in is if you don't apply. A lot of people just let that fear get in their way. And I think that's really been a key to my success story for all these different things I've done from student council in high school to military leadership and volunteering to take over a platoon who just lost their leaders to career switch to go to medicine. You name it. I didn't let the fear of failure stop me. I love it. I get, I get hear you talk all day long because that's kind of as close to religion as I've I get as well. I mean, it's like, those are words to live by. And that's what I hope to teach my own kids. It's what I, how I try to be with my patients myself. And I, I, I just, I think your kids are incredibly lucky to have you, Greg. 
Um, they, they are, they are. They, I mean, I don't even know if you have any idea how lucky your kids are to have you as a dad. I mean, but I don't mean to, I, again, I'm not trying to kind of glorify, pedestalize. I just mean, I mean that authentically. Well, I think I'm generally a lot more lucky to have them, but I appreciate it. Okay. So I always wrap with one question. If you were to give one piece of mental health advice to someone who's struggling, what would it be? I'm going to say two. <laughs> I love it. Um, so the two, the two are don't quit and don't be afraid to ask for help. The first one, I don't even know if quitting is the right word because we all have breaking points. We all have moments where we say, I can't do this. And those are all natural feelings. They're generally very reasonable given the, the hardships people endure in, in life. And so when I say quit, I, I don't want people to think that because they, they're not being their best selves, that they're a quitter. You know, so it, it's more about don't give up. The, the phrase that I would use, and I would literally tell myself this, I wrote it down and, would, and would voice it out loud to myself in some of the most difficult periods in my recovery was just make it to tomorrow. Um, I mentioned there were times where envisioning a future for myself, long-term family, career goals, going back to school. I couldn't see next year, let alone next month or next week. I could really barely even envision what tomorrow was going to be like or even if I wanted to live that long. And so I would I'd backtrack and say, you know what? You can make it another hour, Greg. Reassess in an hour if you still want to be here. And sometimes if that was too much, I'd say, let's make it just two, let's make it another minute. You get so small in the timeline that it's like, by the time you've even had the thought, oh, the minute's gone by. And you're like, all right, I can survive minute to minute. Let's see if I can do hour to hour. And for me, it just became make it to tomorrow. Because you never know. If, if we give up along the way, then you never know if you would have gotten better. The only way to guarantee things aren't going to get better is if you stop. So it's just, just keep going. Pain, emotional, physical, all of it takes a long time to heal. And there's no set course. There's no, all right, you served the, the 30 days of suffering and now everything gets better. But just keep going because things do get better. They just take a long time. So don't quit. Don't stop. Just keep going. Just make it to tomorrow. And if it's so difficult, just make it to the next hour. Make it to the next minute. You can always make it one more day. And by the time you do that, you realize one day has gone by, two days. Suddenly you're looking back and you're saying, like me, that was years ago. I last bit I'll mention with this is there was times early on in my recovery, this first three or four years, where I found myself saying a lot, whether it was in interviews or just casual conversations with people, where I would say, there's nothing I wouldn't give in this world to have my legs back. But as time has gone on, you know what? I've today. Coming up on 11 years since getting injured, I've had some of the most incredible experiences of my life since getting injured, not the least of which is meeting and marrying my wife and having our two children. But there's so much in life that looking back, I don't say that anymore because all the good things in life that I've had that would, I would have to give up just to get my legs back. You know what? I'm not happy about having been injured and lost my limbs, but it led me to where I am today. And I'm very happy with the life I have today and where I'm at um, and it was not always that easy. It took a long time, but I'm so, so, so glad that I did not give up and that I just kept going because I'm here and I have a lot to be grateful for and a lot to enjoy in life. The other part is don't be afraid to ask for help. Not even don't be afraid to ask for help, ask for help. You see someone like me, everything I just said, there's nothing in here that we mentioned. We didn't get into it in the conversation. Nothing in here today ever mentioned anything about help from others. But I can tell you every single step along the way, there were people helping me whether it was the surgeons and nurses physically piecing me back together to family and friends supporting me to veterans groups and nonprofits that helped supply, alleviate financial hardships or just did morale and welfare stuff by helping me go to a Patriots football game or something like that. There are people all along the way 
Oh, and counselors. This mental health stuff was not just Greg figuring it out on his own. It wasn't me just being resilient and gritty. I did counseling. I still do counseling to this day. Even though I, I'm not acutely depressed, I don't have, I'm not on any antidepressants or anything. I voluntarily do counseling once a month, once every couple of months, because I never want to get back to that hole that I was in. I would much rather keep my mental health in check than to try and claw my way back out of a hole that I was in. So me and everybody else that I know that I define as successful in life, all experience hardships as part of life. Don't expect to do it on your own. It's going to be hard, even with the support of a thousand other people, but they're the ones that are going to help you get through it. So ask for help. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of someone being honest with themselves and being true to what they need to get through it. And your future self will thank you if you do. Greg, I can't wait to see what you do with your medical career. There's no question in my mind that you have the the degree and the, the, the information and data and knowledge you need, but you also have those sort of invisible ingredients that really are essential for, for caring for other people, which is empathy, honesty, humility, self-awareness, respect for others and their various abilities and disabilities, and then humor. You're going to be an incredible doctor, and I can't wait to watch your star rise even further. So thank you incredibly from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your story. Appreciate you having me on the show. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you like this episode, I'd love you to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question for the show, please drop us a line at podcast at lucymcbride.com. The views expressed on the show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice applicable to individuals. Such advice must be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at K-Global Studios in Washington, D.C. Our music is by my awesome brother, Walter Martin. On your way out, please enjoy his song, It's a Dream. I'm your host, Lucy McBride, and until next time, be well. Wake up in the morning The birds are performing Singing me a warning That the day is forming Something in that song is sad and sweet Apples for lunch I eat me a bunch what a good thing to munch With a little fruit punch I laugh so hard I spill it Down my feet Then it's cookies and cream Yeah, it's life, it's a dream It's a dream, 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 it's a dream, it's a dream, it's a dream, it's a dream Afternoon nap Next to the cat Making me sneeze Yeah, I got allergies Come to think I'm 
but that thing's got fleas. Bedtime comes and I'm all alone in my little room in our little home. Moonlight softly shining on my sheets. Quite a day we have seen. Boy, this life is a dream. It's 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 